Welcome to Graph Stuff FM, your audio guide into the interconnected world of graph databases. We'll take you on a journey to unravel the mysteries of complex data and showcase the power of relationships. Today, we will explore the complex world of data science and add context to AI and generative AI topics. Is it actually as complex as it seems? We will find out. I'm Jen, and I'm here in the studio with my colleagues, Allison, ABK, and Will. Hello. Hey. Hello. Howdy, howdy. So we're going to be talking about graph data science. Let's dive right in. So to kick us off, maybe we can kind of synthesize some common questions that I've seen in the community that come up a lot around graph data science. And especially right now, there's a lot of, I feel like, renewed interest around AI, especially around the generative AI things like chat GPT, large language models, these sorts of things. And in, in some of our previous episodes, we've talked around these sorts of things. So we've talked about how you can use an LLM to generate cipher queries. Tomas has done a lot of work around this. But I think we haven't really done a deep dive into what is actually graph data science. How does it relate to some of the these larger artificial intelligence machine learning topics? So... To kick off the discussion here, maybe let's frame the question as something like, I've heard about graph data science. There's a lot of interest around generative AI. What is graph data science? How does it relate to AI? And how is Neo4j relevant in this context? So maybe that's a good framing to, to start off. And maybe just to kick off the discussion, let me take a stab at answering this. And I'll point out, I am not a data scientist. I, I come at this from the context of an application developer, like a full stack application developer who's trying to keep track of a lot of different pieces of my architecture of my app. And I'm interested in adding features is what I care about. So with that context, let me try to take a stab at answering just the broader question of what is graph data science? The way I think about this is thinking about this from the context of access patterns to the database, graph access patterns. So I would put this sort of on a spectrum between graph local traversals and graph global operations. So typically in a transactional graph database where let's say I have a, maybe it's a movie recommendation application that I'm building. People can write reviews of movies and then I suggest movies they like, something like that. And typically, the answer to my question is a traversal through the graph. So I have a well-defined starting point. I know, let's say, the currently logged in user. I'm going to start with that node. And I want to know what are all the videos this user has watched? What are all the comments they've left? Something like that. And so I traverse out the graph, starting at that user, following relationships to movies they've watched, comments they've left, things like this. And that's the answer to my question. That's how I can render a view in my application. And graph databases are optimized for these traversals. So there, there's a specific reason I've chosen a graph database to build my application. Now, contrast that with graph global operations. Maybe I want to know who's the most influential user in my network. And to do this, I would use something like PageRank, which is an iterative global graph algorithm where the answer to the question touches every node in the database, goes through this iterative operation to, to figure out who has the highest page rank score. And these are wrapped up in graph algorithms. So with the graph local traversals, I'm writing a Cypher query. I've defined a pattern that I'm looking for in the graph with Cypher. And with a graph global graph 
algorithm, these are typically in the context of Neo4j packaged in the graph data science plugin that extends the functionality of Cypher. So I have procedures and functions that I'm calling. I'm not necessarily writing a Cypher pattern. So that's how I think about the differences between these two things. Graph global, graph local, graph data science falls on the global end of this spectrum. Now, as an application developer, I can still use these things together to add functionality to my application. Maybe finding user with the highest page rank score is part of a recommendation query or something like that. So I'm leveraging that in a transactional use case. So that's, I guess, my attempt to answer the question of what is graph data science, I guess, from the context of an application developer. But let's check in with Allison, who's our resident data scientist. And you can tell me, how did I do? Is that a good sort of approximation for what is graph data science? I think you did a good job of showing what the use case of graph data science is. So when I think of graph data science, I think of it in a couple of different layers. Coming from the data science background, I see the parallel with traditional data science. To your point, this idea of you were talking about page rank when you're trying to talk about influence, what's the most influential. I think that's the classic way that people think about graph data science. They think about the algorithm itself. So what are algorithms that can only be run on graph structures? So we have certain types of algorithms that are unique to certain data types. So for example, in natural language processing, we have particular algorithms that are specific to words. So for example, sentiment analysis or word embeddings. But in general, we have certain algorithms that align to certain data types. And so when we think about graph algorithms, we think about these. So you mentioned one of our centrality algorithms or an influence algorithm, which is PageRank. And as you said, in PageRank, it calculates what is the importance of the node based on how connected it is to other nodes, as well as how important the nodes are that it's connected to. We have other kinds of graph algorithms as well. So you also mentioned pathfinding. So pathfinding is a common algorithm as well. So the traversal you were discussing. So that can be one as well. We have a number of other types of algorithms, but when we think of graph data science, we have the algorithms themselves But we also want to take into account the other aspects of data science, such as statistical information. So what do we know? How many relationships does that node have? How many second hop relationships does that node have? So you can have those more traditional types of statistical information about the nodes as well, which would come into data science. And then something in between where it's sometimes called graph analytics, where it's kind of a combination of the two. So maybe you want to see the overall structure of the graph. You could run an algorithm on it to do community detection, but maybe you just want to see, is the entire graph connected? Is it a series of subgraphs? And some of that is just in the structure itself. So when we think of graph data science, what we want to begin to look at is what additional information or signal can I bring to my problem-solving project that can only be encapsulated when we look at the data in this connected structure. So that that makes sense to me. I I guess a question about like some of the, like I know there's different sets of algorithms that we have. And I guess you touched on this. Some of those algorithms are analytical in nature. It's to like tell me the characteristics of this entire graph. 
And then some of them, like maybe PageRank is one of these that Will started with, you can run just by itself and get an interesting outcome. But I think those kinds of algorithms, is it true that those turn around and enrich the graph with those? So like after you're done with the algorithm, the output is that you actually write back to the graph. Now the graph has got new information that is based on the algorithm. Is that right? The use cases can vary. So for example, it could be that you're a data scientist who currently has some type of machine learning pipeline. And what you want to be able to do is leverage that graph structure and that page rank algorithm to have that value that you're saying you write back and you extract that and it goes into your traditional 2D matrix of what you're running, say, I don't know, a linear regression on or some type of classification algorithm, a traditional 2D matrix type. Or to your point, it can then be an additional piece that's written and stays in the graph itself. So perhaps you run the page rank, you write page rank to the graph, and then you want to leverage page rank for some kind of similarity algorithm. So that value itself of page rank becomes its own feature. So whether it's a feature within a graph algorithm or a feature that you then feed into a 2D algorithm, it becomes that new feature. So it could be any number of ways that we participate in feature engineering from the data that we have. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. So I've got a sense now of, as you first set this up, Will, I, of course, know with the graph local queries, that's the classic cipher pattern matching stuff. Graph global algorithms, either for analysis or enrichment, that's graph data science. Now, the third piece of the diagram here that we're trying to paint with words is, and I don't quite get this, how does that all fit in with generative AI and all the cool stuff that the world is turning on to these days? Where does, how does GDS relate to that? Sure, that's a great question. So let's just start by clarifying what is generative AI. And in our context, we're particularly talking about large language models. So we can talk about those a little bit. Roughly what happens in a large language model at its most basic is that the algorithm leveraging deep neural networks will take the language it has access to that it's trained on itself It will then tokenize and break that down and then will create a probabilistic sentence outcome, shall we say, that takes into account not just the rules based of how those words were used in the past, but also the context and the meaning of those words to create new sentences that it may not have seen before at its most basic, right? So the question then becomes, in this age of generative AI, how does this relate to GDS? And there's a couple of different ways. I know in our previous podcast, we had talked about leveraging LLMs to write Cypher. One of the things about this availability of chat GPT and these other LLMs is that it allows the common man, the non-technologist to interact in a way that they may not have been able to before. So as we said, using say, show me a graph that is run some cipher query underneath. The other thing that we can look at is, and where I find what we have at Neo4j and where the graph becomes more interesting is how leveraging graphs can actually improve your large language model. 
for example, there was one that we had talked about regarding Langchain. So in Langchain, you have the initial query and then a subsequent query. And so leveraging the knowledge graph of your, say, your company's data to produce a better output or training your large language model on your internal customer service book to help run your chatbot. So there's a number of different ways that we can look at generative AI as it relates to GDS. And generally, they're going to be either in the way that you are consuming the graph by querying that graph, or it could be the way you're improving things in the back end based on that graph. But one of my personal favorites is this idea, what we're working on now, is leveraging the large language model to help create the graph. So taking the large language model, taking that, putting it on top of a piece of unstructured data and having it return the knowledge graph to you. You run that iteratively over a corpus of works, and you then begin to build the knowledge graph of all of those structured pieces. Many layers to it. Some folks were talking about leveraging, they called it graph GPT, that ability to take unstructured data and turn it into a graph to actually create summaries of works. So if we have a number of documents that all feed into like a single knowledge graph that gives you the overview of that body of work. And so if you're looking at subsets of the corpus, you can look at those kinds of things as well. So the there's many ways that the large language models and graphs work together in this particular instance. And it's, like I said, in the front, in the back, and in the middle as well. So these are really three complementary technologies then, right? Like that one is a replacement for the next, like even though like GDS does pathfinding, you don't want to reach for that necessarily because you can do some pathfinding just in Cypher, right? So these are very complementary solutions. Exactly. We talked last month about the right graph for the right problem. In this case, what I really appreciate about the tool set that we have is we can reach for what we need as we need it. So shortest path, I think, is already built into Cypher. We have some that are just within the plugin. We've got some other new ones coming out. And it's not one or the other. It's about, how, to your point, ABK, how all the tools fit together in order to find the optimal solution for whatever your pain point is or whatever your goal is, right? Will was talking about, I want to make this recommendation. How do I put this into my application? How do I use GDS to improve what I'm delivering in this app? One of the challenges that I've had when using ChatGDP and other LLMs, I think are what are known as hallucinations. So this is the case where the LLM tells you something that is not factually accurate, right? So LLMs are great for this sort of creative like brainstorming process. But if you don't live in that world, if you live in the factual world of, there's the great example of the personal injury lawyer who used ChatGPT to create a brief or some motion that he filed in court that cited, I think, three precedent court cases that simply did not exist. And he, of course, got in trouble for that. In, in my world, it's more like, help me write some code to do something to solve some problem. And there have been several times 
where ChatGPT tells me to use a Python package that doesn't exist. You use the Near4j Python package for whatever it was. It was some sort of geospatial thing that simply doesn't exist. That That's concerning to me because that's not helpful. And one of the things I'm most excited about with this idea of combining graphs with large language models is, as Allison was saying, to improve the results of your model, to improve the model as almost the secondary process where you're using your internal knowledge graph, whether that's your enterprise data or maybe your personal data, whatever the context is, but you're basically using that to verify the results from the large language models. In the context of the lawyer generating the the false motions, it would be, okay, do these court cases exist? Does this relationship between these cases and the precedent law actually exist in my legal knowledge graph? And if you have that step almost as a post-processing step to verify this in your knowledge graph, that can really address this problem of hallucinations and enhance the value that you're seeing. An- another sort of maybe related, and maybe Allison, you, you can tell me if this is related or if this is a different idea. I hear folks talking about this idea of explainability in AI. So the model is a black box. The model generates something, tells me something, but I don't necessarily understand what are the inputs? What is the data that it's using to generate that? And is there a place for graphs to help with this idea of explainability in AI? Yeah, that's it's an excellent point. One of the challenges that is inherent in these multi-layer deep learning models is this black box problem that we don't necessarily have that explainability. So what becomes possible when you're leveraging something like GDS or knowledge graphs as it's related to it, you could actually then go through and say, where did this come from? So if you have a fact, depending on how you connect them, obviously, you if you have a fact, you can say, show me in the graph where this fact exists. And then you can go through and see where that's coming from. In that case, you absolutely can use the graph for that kind of explainability. It happens a lot in, in what I like about many of the GDS algorithms is that we can actually see. So for example, in PageRank, when we're considering what is the most influential, it's mathematical. So you can actually look at any node in the graph and understand how did it come to that score for that node? It's because it's connected to these nodes, therefore it has this amount of influence, and you can track the math that produces that. So Graph definitely has this ability to be more explainable. Obviously, if you're running deep learning, then you're going to start to venture into some of those black boxes again. But for many of the algorithms that we're using, the math is very clear and that explainability is also very apparent. I know that some of the folks on our responsible AI team right now are looking at graph for understanding bias. So can we see bias in the structure of the graph itself? So things that maybe might be missed because it doesn't hit a particular (laughs) p-value, you know, in those statistical ways that we're looking for bias, 
we can now see it in structure by running, say, community detection or other kinds of graph analysis so that we can see bias in a new way. So graph, when any time that we are bringing context, we are going to have an ability to have more access to other layers of information that are tied to the context itself. It's been a little bit since I've looked at GDS. To be honest, back when I played with it, I was playing with the Graph Algorithms Library back before the GDS library really existed, at least in official context. But what I really found was interesting, we played a lot with, at the time, Game of Thrones was really big. (laughs) So that kind of places you in the year and time this was. But we did a lot with the Game of Thrones data set. What I always found really interesting is that you could utilize the pathways between the nodes, between the entities, and kind of see these relationships forming over time. And as you went through either the series or the books, you could see that structure of the graph changing over time and how new alliances were formed or how events caused certain alliances to break apart and to fracture. And so I really found that interesting that yes, you can run these algorithms and you can list off all sorts of fancy names for these. But when you actually look at the structure of the graph, and these algorithms applied to it, you're really understanding what those algorithms are trying to do. And from an application developer point of view, that makes the world of data science so much more accessible because now I can see what these algorithms are trying to accomplish and I can verify those results because I can see that structure changing uh, right before my eyes visually. I feel like visualization is is an interesting complement to graph data science and graph algorithms, especially the idea of using the results of your algorithms to style the graph. So Allison was talking about using LLMs to point an LLM at a Wikipedia page, and there's a technique for generating a knowledge graph as like a summary of that of that Wikipedia page, or whatever it is, some body of text. And You can really see the value there when you have the graph visualization. You're basically doing so what it's like some like entity extraction process to to model the entities and then figure out how they're connected essentially is what's going on. And when you see this in action, it's so apparent to look at just this giant wall of text versus a graph of nodes and how those entities are connected. You can at a glance understand what's going on, what this body of text is talking about, then To go one step further, if you then apply graph algorithms like some centrality metrics, some community detection, and use that to style, say, the size of the nodes are sized relative to their page rank score, for example, so that more important nodes are bigger. And we color them by the results of some community detection algorithm. So it's clear that if you're you're a blue node, you belong in the, the blue cluster. If you're red, you belong in the red one, whatever. And to me, like that is, that's super powerful in visualization tools. And New York J Bloom supports this. So I, I can do this sort of point and click now to, to not only use the results of the algorithms, but to actually set up and run the algorithms in Bloom. If you haven't done this before, this is like amazingly powerful to just point and click and see the power of using graph algorithms and graph data science in the context of your visualization. It just adds so much more visual information to potentially like tens of thousands of nodes that you're visualizing at the same time. I think this is a like an extremely powerful combination and that not only can graph data science be useful for 
all the things we've talked about, but even just for powering visualizations, is it's really quite magical. It's not magical, Will. It's math. <laughs> but sometimes math is magical. <laughs> no, but you're right. That's what's exciting to me about this particular time in AI. For those of us who have been working in it for a long time, we're always the nerds in the back of the room. And so to be in this position now where it's so readily available and to have these no code opportunities to interact with AI, that accessibility, I think is just a really powerful time. We were talking earlier and I was saying, I know that the future is here because our Sunday nights, we always do dinner with my parents and my children. My parents are now in their seventies and they were talking to me about chat GPT. And then the children were explaining that to them, how it worked and how it had been recently banned at school. So it's just an interesting time to be able to like you said, bring GDS to bloom, bring GDS to things that people can clearly understand and interact with and have some power within to leverage. We've talked about some use cases and some ideas here with some like practical things sprinkled in. But I guess for someone who wants to get started, if I want to get hands on with graph data science and start doing some of these things, we mentioned that Neo4j Graph Data Science plugin is a plugin for Neo4j that extends Cypher. But what's the best way to get started? And does it matter if I'm a data scientist or if I'm an application developer? Are there different pathways to get started with this Graph Data Science technology? Yeah, it's a great question, Will. And in some ways, the on-ramp will change depending on whether you're a data scientist or an application developer or just curious. And in some ways, they'll be very much the same. We have a lot of content available at Neo4j.com, but more importantly, we have something called Graph Academy. And at Graph Academy, we have courses that will walk you through how the technology works and you can increasingly participate in that. One of my favorite tools, honestly, is we have something called Sandbox. And in Sandbox, we have data sets that are automatically loaded for you. And we have playbooks that walk you through a variety of data science use cases. The good news is you don't have to write any of the code. We show you all of that code so that you can just walk through and see how it works. And then the third option, if you're interested, is you can actually set up a sandbox and then work with a product we have called Workspace. Workspace is the platform so that you can actually load your own data into it. You can use these Bloom capabilities, Bloom with GDS within the sandbox. So the sandbox is, it's it's got a time limit on it. So I know for data scientists, we like to get in, get out, nobody gets hurt. <laughs> So for us, that's usually a pretty good tool for folks who are interested in more of the analytics aspects and less of the deep algorithms, leveraging Aura DS, which is a free database instance with some code will allow you to interact with that as well. So depending on your area of how you want to use it and what your level of experience is with Neo4j or with Graph in general. We have an on-ramp for everyone. So we'll definitely include in the show notes a couple of those different options and paths. But as I said, if you come to neo4j.com, we can point you in all the directions, but definitely check out Graph Academy. And I think it's also important to point out that Neo4j integrates with lots of existing machine learning 
platforms and tooling. So for example, as a data scientist, you're probably using Python all, all the time. There's a Python client specifically for GDS that's available. There's also an interesting announcement a couple of weeks ago from Google talking about the Neo4j integration with Vertex AI, which is one of Google's machine learning platforms as, as talking about how to use embeddings in, in the context of Vertex AI. Just want to point out that there are lots of interesting integrations with Neo4j and other toolings that, of course, is really powerful because we're not only using this technology in a vacuum. You, of course, need to be able to integrate with different systems. The only other thing that I wanted to drop in more for the developers who may not think that GDS has anything of interest for them. Um, sometimes what you'll find, and I don't know if you folks want to speak to this a little bit as well, is that sometimes you don't know that a GDS tool will be helpful. So for example, if you're trying to do this traversal, you're trying to get from point A to point B, maybe you weren't even aware that a shortest path is a possibility. So I didn't know if there were ways that you had used GDS in a way that Previously, you might have done it a different way that was much more laborious and that leveraging GDS enabled you to do something more efficiently as a developer in a way that was easier to maintain. Does anybody have any examples of those experiences? I still have a very clear split in my head. I think that it's a great question, Allison, and that for me, I haven't been able to find that middle ground where like, there's some things I would do just with Cypher. And I just do it with Cypher. It doesn't occur to me that there might be another way in the GDS world. On the other hand, there's things I know I can't do with Cypher. that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do community detection. That's a GDS thing. I'm going to completely switch. So I have a very hard kind of like choice where it's either this or that. And I know that there's an overlap. And like sometimes it might be better to like lean rather than go all the way over. But I haven't had vacation for those yet. So that's a good thing to bring up that I should keep in my mind. Just be like, oh yeah, let me look for those opportunities. And that doesn't occur to me. One of the more interesting aspects for me in the context of graph data science is this idea of graph projections. And the idea here is that oftentimes the graph that you want to run your algorithm on is not the same graph that you're storing in the database. And we talked on the last episode a bit about data modeling. And I think a lot of that is in the context of application development. And as application developer, that's oftentimes what we're optimizing our graph data model for. Now with graph data science, the typical pattern is you take the data that's stored in the database and you define how to project that into a new graph. You're inferring relationships. Maybe it's a subgraph or maybe you have these multi-hop inferred relationships and you're projecting that into a simplified version of that graph. And this is really interesting because that allows you, I think, more easily to be able to combine this idea of using graphs in Neo4j for application development with the powers of graph data science. I don't need to change my graph model that I'm working with in Neo4j to use GDS and graph data science because the first step is 
projecting the graph to build out this inferred graph. And I'll give a couple of examples of where this came up. So a few years ago, I was working on a project with NBC News around analyzing Russian Twitter trolls in the context of the 2016 election. And NBC News had obtained this data set of deleted tweets from Twitter. So there was basically some process that an investigation had found these troll accounts, Twitter removed them. And the problem there was researchers and data journalists didn't know what these trolls were doing. They weren't able to analyze the data because it had been removed from the Twitter API. NBC News obtained this deleted data and used Near4j to help analyze that. And I was a technical consultant, I guess, with the NBC News folks. And so we had this data of users, most of them were troll accounts, posting a tweet. And one of the things that the NBC News folks wanted to look at was how are these troll accounts amplifying other troll accounts? And that actually ended up being the majority of what these accounts were doing were simply amplifying the message of other troll accounts. And so we were looking at retweets. So the model that we had was something like a user posts a tweet and then there's a retweet, which is a new node connected to that tweet because a, a retweet is a posting a new tweet. And then that's connected to another account. And so we had three or four relationships to get at this user retweeted or amplified another user. And so we projected out this inferred user to user relationship because that's where we wanted to run our graph algorithms, what users are amplifying the message of another. And so we projected that out from a much more complex model. And that I, th I thought was a really powerful pattern. This also came up in an, another project I was working on that was building a routing application for, for a specific use case. So we had data from New York City, basically the road network. We had some specific aspects of this routing application as like predicates. And so what we did was to project out a simplified version of the graph. We had a much more complex graph to, to measure the physical road network but that wasn't helpful for the routing aspect of it. And so we project out the routing graph on top of the physical structure to give us this intersection to intersection route. And then the GDS plugin has pathfinding algorithms, things like A-star, Dijkstra's algorithm, these sorts of things. And so we used that for building this routing application on top of a simplified projected graph. So I just wanted to highlight that idea, I guess one that this idea of projecting the graph out is super powerful and allows you to have a much more complex graph that you may have optimized for another use case, not data science related, application development related perhaps. And I think that aspect really makes graph data science and these concepts a lot more accessible for application developers. I just want to point out that this idea of graph data science is not just for data scientists. It allows application developers to add really powerful features to your applications. Yeah, totally makes sense. Welcome to the other side, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot to digest there, a lot of good thoughts, a lot of good from the data science side and obviously from the developer perspective on graph data science, all the fun stuff happening with generative AI. And Allison, thanks for some of the hints about where to get started, how people can get going with this stuff. Um, one of the ways people get started that they'd have to wait a little bit for it of course, you mentioned the Graph Academy. There's you know, lots of great blogs you can read. And if you wait a little bit, 
but register now. You can join us at Nodes 2023 in October, October 26th. But there's going to be an amazing track just dedicated to AI and ML talks. So we're just touching the surface here of the stuff, right? We're just scratching the surface at Nodes. We're going to have lots of people, lots of great ideas. It should be a pretty fantastic experience for really getting a deep dive on these topics. And then we want to touch on some of the, as I mentioned, blog posts. There's been an amazing amount of blog posts being put out around this stuff. Will, you mentioned this Cloud Vertex thing. Exactly. Yeah, Google's Vertex AI. I think we'll link some of these blog posts in the show notes. They touch on a lot of the topics that we've talked about here. There's a blog from Google Cloud talking exactly how you can use graph embeddings in the context of Google's Vertex AI platform. There's been some interesting posts that have come out from some folks internal to Neo4j who are looking at using LLMs with graphs and Neo4j. So we'll link those as well. I won't try to summarize them here. I, I think we've touched on some of the main ideas in our discussion above that, that these touch on. But one blog post I do want to talk a little bit about is actually one that I wrote, which is... I guess a blog post and also a two-page colorful PDF, which is what I call the spatial cipher cheat sheet. So I've been working on a lot of geospatial projects recently, and I wanted to put together a document that talks about and covers a lot of the different geospatial things that we can do with Neo4j in one place. And I, I really like this cheat sheet format, which... If you remember in school, sometimes you, you're allowed like a one index card. And so you write as, as small as you possibly can to have everything on there. I really like that format. And so I went through and I put together this two-page cheat sheet that talks about a lot of the different ways we can work with geospatial data in Neo4j. I have a hard copy of it here. You can listen to the crinkle of the paper there. And basically what it is, the first page talks a bit about some of the spatial functionality built into the core database. A lot of this is built around the point 2D and 3D geographic point type that we have available in the database and covering how we can do things like distance searches, bounding boxes, geocoding, importing data that has geospatial components, how we can do things like some of the pathfinding with A-star and Dijkstra that that we we talked about earlier. And then on the back of the page, one section is covering using the NFJ Python driver for working with geospatial data. So we're using a flights example data set for most of this. And so assuming we have data in Neo4j, how do I create a geodata frame from Neo4j? So if you're familiar with Python and pandas, there's a data structure called a data frame. A geo data frame is built on top of a pandas data frame to add some geospatial functionality. Basically, there's a column that has a geometry, which then gives you the ability to do some geospatial operations. Anyway, we show how to build one of those. And then there's a section on working with OpenStreetMap data and Neo4j in Python. So we look at how to pull that into Neo4j. And then we, of course, cover a little bit on how to build these beautiful visualizations of road networks by, again, applying graph algorithms in Bloom for community detection. In this case, I found that betweenness centrality on a road network can show you intersections that connect other sort of chunks of the road network. So I found that to be 
most interesting. So anyway, the Spatial Cipher cheat sheet is is out now. I also wrote a blog post version of it because I I found that easier for sort of copying and pasting code, but I like the paper version as well. So that's available. Alex and I did a live stream also just diving into some of these different aspects of it. That's linked in the blog post as well. And of course, we'll list these and and some other interesting blog posts from the community in the show notes. Fantastic. Good stuff, Will, as, as always. And so, Will, why don't you keep keep the stage here for a minute here? This is our section that we do every month that we love. What's your favorite tool of this month? I love the favorite tool of the month category. It's fun because it forces me to think back and reflect on the project I worked on this month and what was I actually doing? What did I actually find useful? And so my favorite tool of the month, and I feel like I may have chosen this one previously, but if I did, that's okay. It's it's quite powerful. And that is APOC Load JSON. So we've talked about APOC before. It's the standard library for Cypher that gives us some additional procedures and functions within Cypher. And one of those is APOC load JSON, which allows us to parse JSON files, either locally or remote. I can also use this to hit like JSON APIs with, with parameters, which was really cool. And then I get back an object in Cypher that... I can then, with Cypher, define how I want to process that JSON object to either create data, which is my typical use case, or just iterate over a JSON structure. And in the context of the geospatial functionality that I was talking about earlier, there's this data format called GeoJSON, which is basically adding the idea of features and geometry to a JSON document. And this is in the cheat sheets. So we want to see how this works. Just check out that. You can see some examples. And it's really powerful because it allows us to load GeoJSON using Cypher and then define in the graph how I want to store and model complex geometries. So super useful. I use this all the time. In the same similar vein of like load CSV, if you've seen that, it's a similar idea. But that is my favorite tool of this month, APOC load JSON. How about you, ABK? Tell us tell us your favorite tool of the month. Sure. Mine is a little less practical than yours in some ways. I think it's amazing like the amount of utility you get out of just a single APOC function or a procedure, right? Like, APOC has hundreds of them. And like each one of them, you could probably spend an episode on talking about all the cool things you can do with just that bit. APOC is amazing. I have in the last month, the last two months now, become obsessed after having naively adopted the fantastic arrows tool. The body of work is not mine, but I've inherited the body of work and I'm reviving it, modernizing it, carrying it forward. And I'm falling in love with it all over again. It is a marvelous tool. If you haven't used arrows.app, you should go out there today, check it out. Quickly put together a graph of your own choosing, either for data modeling purposes or just for doing some sample data. It's a lovely tool, a joy to work with. And I can't think of anything else other than arrows these days. I'm hoping to get to the point where doing the coding part of it is behind me a little bit and I can get back to actually just doing things with arrows and then maybe I'll shift my attention to something else. Maybe arrows plus APOC. That's that's going to be the my goal is to figure out what's the perfect marriage of APOC and arrows. That'll be for another episode. How about you, Allison? What's your favorite tool this month? 
My favorite tool this month, not surprisingly, is a GDS algorithm. We have something coming out at the beginning of July called the Bellman Ford Shortest Path. So we were talking about pathfinding earlier. Bellman Ford does a couple of things. One of the biggest things that it does is it allows you to use negative weights. So sometimes when we're calculating the shortest path, you can think of it like when you're using ways. Do I want the shortest distance or do I want the fastest route? And in each of those, each segment of the route is going to have a weight. Now, you may be in a situation where you want to have a negative weight to a particular connection or relationship. So Bellman Ford is going to allow you to create shortest path, leveraging negative weight. Additionally, it also employs sampling and parallelization. And so it actually significantly reduces computation time as well. So if you've been struggling with computation time and trying to figure out how to manage negative weights in your shortest path, take a look at Bellman Ford. Allison, that now sounds like one of the answers for our earlier question of when to use Cypher, when to use GDS. This might be one of those occasions where <laughs> this particular shortest path, actually, you know, I don't want to use that in Cypher. I do want to switch over. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love that you're seeing yourself in GDS already, <laughs> ABK. Oh, it's unavoidable. And Jen, how about you? What's your tool of the month? I'm actually going to highlight a little bit of ABKs with a practical example. I used Arrows, I think it's been in the last week or two. So I had a community member. I've been popping out to the community a little bit here and there. And someone had asked me a question. Here's structure, my graph here, my nodes, and this is what I'm trying to do to update the graph. And I was trying to follow the text of the graph. And what I ended up doing is just jumping out to arrows and drawing it. Okay, I know I have this entity. I know there's a relationship to this other entity. And here's the structure I ended up with. And then I was actually able to send that back to the community member and say, hey, this is what I see your structure as from the way you explained it. Does this look accurate? And if this is the structure, this is what you need to do in order to go about updating it to plug it in correctly. So I will highlight arrows just to say that I've used it recently and it has been super helpful. Awesome. <laughs> and then tagging on my favorite tool of the month, I've spent quite a bit of time this month in it is Spring Data Neo4j. If you haven't explored that, feel free to check that out. So if you're familiar with Java, with Spring Framework, Spring Boot, so on, Spring Data Neo4j is the kind of data plugin to the Neo4j database. They have lots of other integrations with stores such as you know MongoDB, lots of other relational by using Spring Data JPA and so on. But this is the Neo4j integration. And I've spent a lot of time here in the last month, especially exploring some features that I never thought I would really use. So the more niche features, if you will. So it's been really interesting and lots of learning paths for me that I didn't have before. And lots of things I'm turning into blog posts or to content, hoping that maybe others won't trip over the same things I have in the past. So that's my tool of the month, super useful for writing applications. And there's lots of good kind of features in there that maybe aren't highlighted enough on a regular basis. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up Spring Data Neo4j. If you think about it, Jennifer, it's been with us almost as long as we've had Neo4j. Spring Data Neo4j has just been there. Yes. And we sometimes forget we have this magical, mature, refined, like fantastic library. Yeah, it, it, and Spring is often referred to as being magic. But when you start diving into it, you start seeing it. it's not necessarily, as we were talk talking about GDS, it's not necessarily the black box magic. You're seeing what the designers put into this in order to help you build tools more efficiently and faster and better. Awesome. Will, do you want to bring us home? Absolutely. So we will 
close things out here as we usually do by touching on a few upcoming events in the next month. So for July, first of all, on the Near4j live stream every Monday, Michael and Alex do a stream on exploring Aura Free by looking at a different data set. These are really fun and unscripted. My favorite part is watching all the different real world issues that come up and watching Michael and Alex talk through them and figuring out how to how to get around them. And these are always quite interesting. So we'll link the different live stream sessions. I, I don't think we know. I don't think Michael and Alex even know until maybe the day of what data sets they're going to be looking at. So that's always fun. On July 12th, we have a Neo4j live graph data science related demo talking about how to build a 360 degree view of your customers. And then a few more Similar format, I believe, of the sort of live demo with graph data science approach on July 14th, touching on graph data science and machine learning with times for both Europe and US time zones, as well as on the 19th, looking at fraud detection with graph data science. And on July 21st, talking about the pros and cons of native versus non-native, finding the right graph database. Great. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening. As always, check out the show notes to find links to various things that we have talked about. And if you don't subscribe, please feel free to subscribe to graphstuff.fm. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.